China's influence is rising, but how is it changing the countries around it? From Radio Free Europe, I'm Reid Standish, and this is Talking China and Eurasia, a podcast about how Beijing is changing the balance of power. Emmanuel Macron arrived in China today for a three-day state visit, during which he hopes to dissuade Xi Jinping from supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while also developing European trade ties with Beijing. But can the French president's diplomatic push actually succeed? On today's episode, we'll be looking at Macron's China visit, why he's being joined by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and what it means for Europe's future relations with China. We'll also be looking at whether Macron stands a chance of achieving this goal of putting distance between Xi and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Helping me figure all of this out is Rickard Josiak, longtime Brussels watcher and Radio Free Europe's Europe editor. So, Rickard, thanks a lot for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? I'm all right. I hope you hear me, Reid. Yeah, coming through all clear. Thanks a lot. So, Rickard... Um, you know, let's start with the basics. Explain to people why is this trip happening? How did it come about? What's happened so far? And, you know, what are the story arcs that people should be watching for? Well, there's a few here, but of course, everything stems from uh, Mr. Xi's visit to Moscow, where he spoke to Mr. Putin. And then the European urge, I would say, to reconnect with China again. So obviously you have, as you said, uh, Madame von der Leyen and French President Macron going together to show a sort of sense of European unity. But you also had, for example, the Spanish Prime Minister uh, going there as well. Uh, a week ago, you're going to have the EU foreign policy chief going very soon as well. So this is a sort of sense of the Europeans to reconnect to a certain sense with China again, uh, try to nudge them away from Russia, uh, try to see if they can, in a sense, play a more, for European eyes, a more positive role uh, when it comes to uh, the conflict in Ukraine. So, of course, the Ukrainian issue is left, right and center here for the Europeans. It's trying to sort of make some daylight, perhaps, between Beijing and Moscow. But, of course, uh, Mr. Macron is also arriving in uh, China with lots of French businessmen. So obviously he's trying to strike some some trade deals as well. So there's always this sort of thing where there is going to be a difficult diplomatic um, mission going there. But as always, China is such an important motor economically for the European Union. And I think you will see that as well. So there's a little bit of everything in there. So, so it's a lot to unpack. It definitely seems like there's a lot to unpack. And maybe let's start with this dynamic between von der Leyen uh, and the European Commission and their China policy. And then also, I mean, Macron, his French delegation, and just kind of where all those other European interests towards China seem to intersect. I mean, I think it's worth noting, you know, you do raise that there's this, uh, you know, French delegation of businessmen traveling with them. But also, you know, when German Chancellor Olaf Scholz traveled in late 2022 to Beijing. He, you know, didn't bring along anybody representing the EU. It was just himself and a large block of German businessmen. But I have a lot of questions here. So what's von der Leyen's mission here? And, you know, it seems like she's spinning a lot of plates. So what are all those plates and how does she keep spinning them during this visit? She obviously made a, a big China speech last week and, and she came up with this sort of phrase that, you know, the European Union doesn't want to decouple 
with China, which is sort of like, in a sense, what the Americans are trying to do. But she invented this new phrase, we sort of like, that we want to de-risk instead. So what does that de-risking actually means? Of course, it means for European businesses, especially in sort of critical infrastructure, to, to screen more. And then the European Union is about to start screening of Chinese investment. But on the other hand, it also means uh, that uh, export, especially of sensitive material to China, probably will be screened as well in the future. That's an interesting de development, actually. But as always uh, with the European Union, there's one step to the left and one step to the right. And she also talked up the possibilities of doing trade with China, especially in sort of green energy and stuff like that. So it's very interesting to see where the U European Union is trying to fit into this. They're not as hawkish as the Americans. And of course, many American, sorry, European eyes are looking transatlantic and see what potentially can happen uh, in America next year with election year and thinking that, you know, we might have a, a, another Trump uh, coming next year and it could be good not to put all our eggs in one America-sized basket. And that's, I think, exactly what, what, what the French are trying to look at as well, that we, we, the European Union is still trying to find some sort of strategic autonomy that the French love to talk about so much. And this trip can be seen in, in this aspect as well. Not any sort of chance of decoupling, but to still see where the Chinese are and see if they can play, if they, especially the French can play, a, a diplomatic role internationally, which they're so much seeking. Well, that's, that's super interesting, Ricard. Um, you know, I, I'm always curious about how, you know, this line that Brussels and, you know, different European heads of state seem to be walking in regards to China, because, I mean, I feel like it's always a bit difficult. It's a tough, tight rope to walk in the best of times. Um, but, you know, that path is getting narrower and narrower, it seems like. Um, and, you know, going back to talking about von der Leyen's speech, you know, I think it was quite notable. Um, you know, I think it, it caught a lot of headlines for, uh, you know, being tougher than I think than what we're used to seeing coming out of Brussels of late. I know you mentioned a few of those points, but I know she, she also stated quite clearly um, that, you know, the future, this future relationship with China will be dictated by China's, you know, how China behaves around Russia's vision of Ukraine, you know, that will determine the course of things between Beijing and Brussels. Um, but I'm really curious, you know, what did you make of this speech? Um, I mean, did it come across as too tough for you? Is it reminiscent of, of, of other things? And what might that tell us about, you know, where that line might lie ahead? You know, especially as you said, there's all these things on the horizon, you know, from the U.S. election to, you know, the broader European economy. You know, uh, Reid, I, I was Brussels correspondent for a very long time uh, in, in a previous life. And it reminded me so much of uh, Western European politicians and how they spoke about Russia, let's say going back three or four years before the full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. It's the same sort of thing that they sort of, it, you know, at, at one hand, they praise uh, uh, Russia, uh, say, and always talking something historical figure. It could be Dostoevsky or Pushkin or Tolstoy. And it was the same here with von der Leyen's speech. She talks about Confucius and about different inventions that China have done. And then it's always a critical part where they talk about human rights violations and the threatening of neighbors. She mentioned tai Taiwan very clearly and, and so on. And, and so did the Europeans when they talked about Russia before, about, you know, Russia menacing its, its close neighborhood, whether it was Georgia or Moldova or Ukraine. And, and then it sort of also comes back, though, again, to sort of things where we can still do business at for her obviously still being driven very much by a green agenda. It's about, you know, investment in biotechnology and stuff like that. And 
when it was the Russians, it was always about energy and pay, maybe potentially people-to-people -people contact. So when I, when I listened to that speech and, and read it again, it's sort of like it could have changed a few words and it could have been a, let's say, a speech by the previous European Commission president talking about Russia. So uh, I feel that Europeans are very much right now with China where they were with Moscow a few years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say uh, there is a bit of sense of uh, deja vu, you know, that is that is happening here, both in terms of what you're saying, you know, sometimes some of the, the same phrases, perhaps, you, uh, you know, being tweaked slightly and recirculating in speeches. But I mean, also, you know, if we, we, we turn a little bit here to look at Macron's visit to China, I mean, he's dubbed this trip as a chance for a reset with China. Obviously, the whole idea of having a type of you know, big policy reset, that's also very reminiscent of Western policy, I guess, a lot more in this sense of American policy towards Russia, um, you know, but quite broadly about, uh, you know, trying to get things back on the a right page, you know, perhaps there is a path forward that can be worked out. But, you know, I'm Rickard, I'm, I'm, I'm quite curious, you know, can you can you tell people who are listening, you know, how did we get into a place between with with Europe and China, where we're even in need of a reset in the first place? And I mean, what, what does that really mean when Macron is saying we need a reset? I mean, there are two things here. First of all, uh, I would say that uh, the Europeans have rightly, I would say, uh, concluded that if there's one country that can have an impact on Russia, that's China. I think, and I think the Europeans are right about that. I think is the Chinese are the one power that somehow can nudge Russia in a different direction. But then it's the whole French question as well, or let's call it the Macron question. Uh, this president has been on the outlook for a big uh, foreign policy win ever since he became president. And he's an internal optimist. Now, I mean, you remember very well in the run-up to the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, the full-scale invasion in February last year, that he was the last European leader who really was pushing and trying and calling Putin and trying to be some sort of, you know, a, a deal-maker of some sort. So I'm not surprised that he's going to China and trying to play uh, the same role here, trying to see if, you know, uh, French diplomacy could work. Because in a sense, um, you know, he he is also escaping from a domestic scene that is very turbulent. You've probably seen, and most people who have followed European politics, that uh, he has had an enormous difficult month uh, when it comes to pension reforms, uh, with constant protests uh, reaching up to millions of people on the streets in various French cities. So he's also escaping a domestic agenda. And right now, He's looking at things uh, from a foreign policy point of view. This is he's, he's not running for any election anymore. So he can try to be a sort of statesman and try to get, you know, in a sense, uh, leaving some foreign policy legacy in place that he so far has been lacking. Well, uh, you know, that's interesting. You talk a bit about that, you know, leaving a legacy and also, you know, the domestic situation in France that he, um, you know, appears to be, you know, perhaps understandably looking to get a little bit of distance from. Um, but, you know, that makes me wonder of, you know, if we look about this from the Chinese perspective, okay, here is this guy. Um, okay. He's the president of France, which is, you know, it's okay. It's on the security council. It's by no means an insignificant nation, but, you know, I think the way that China sees uh, the global playing field is perhaps similar. You know, it's, it's Moscow, it's Washington, it's Beijing, you know, really, it's Washington and Beijing. You know, Moscow, I think, is perhaps getting lowered on the pedestal from the Chinese point of view. So I guess it's also this question of, you know, 
does Macron have the sway to really pull this off? And, you know, as you said, you know, a big part of this chasm that's formed, uh, you know, between Europe and China is over the war in Ukraine and China's relationship with Russia during that. Um, and so Macron really seems to think that he he has this personal touch that can perhaps smooth things over. You know, he's going to also join Xi uh, to Guangzhou, I believe, which is where uh, Xi's father was uh, governor for some time. But I mean, it does seem like a bit of a gambit to try and drive some sort of wedge between Putin and Xi. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, Rickard, can you tell us, um, do people in Brussels think Macron is up to the task? Um, and, uh, you know, what about von der Leyen? Can she, she help out in this in any kind of way? Can she be the, the bad cop to Macron's good cop? I think one of the reasons she's going there is in a certain sense to rein him in a bit. Because uh, if there's one thing that the Chinese, I think, would like to do uh, with the Europeans is to, to split them a bit, right? To divide and conquer. And uh, that is sort of the reason, I think, as well, why she was so insistent on going on this trip. And of course, Macron invited her and so on. And she was very quick to seize it because I mentioned that, oh, you know, the Europeans are trying in some way to see if there's some daylight between the, the Chinese and the Russians. But very much what the Chinese would want, if, ever, if anything, it's to create daylight between the United States and, and Europe. And the, probably the best avenue of, do that, of doing that is to create a wedge, especially uh, between Western Europeans, uh, notably France, but also other trading partners are trading a lot. I think about Italy, for example, maybe Spain, and the more hawkish Central Eastern Europeans, especially the Baltics. So uh, I, I am sort of wondering if uh, the Europeans really have thought this through, uh, quite frankly. But in the same time, I, I do think that it's a good point for them to, to talk to the Chinese. And even the Baltics have come out and said that, you know, they, we, we want channels of communication with China. China is too important. So let's see what comes out of this. But I think it's rather it's, it's a rather perilous trip that that might might happen, you know. Right. I mean, that, that's obviously, um, you know, given the state of relations, especially, you know, broadly China and the West, but especially we talk about China and the United States. I mean, things are in quite a rough state, I think, probably perhaps one of the roughest states they've been in um, in the modern period. So there's obviously no harm in trying to walk things back at all. Um, but I think what you said, I mean, that, that that's kind of the, the flip side here of this question. You know, Macron is allegedly going to Beijing to try and drive a wedge between Xi and Putin. But I think perhaps from Xi's point of view, he's welcoming Macron to try and drive a, a wedge between Europe and the United States. Um, and it's kind of, you know, who's the who's the better statesman, perhaps at the end of the day, and who has more sway, which at least when it comes in the sway section, I mean... Where do you sound about? I guess that gets into an interesting question, Ricardo. I mean, is this kind of a very, you know, a mutual need? There's a kind of symbiosis here or, you know, I mean, China obviously wants access to the European market. But I mean, does does the EU need China more than China needs Europe at this point? I, I would say so. Yes. I mean, like uh, the, the Europeans obviously have a, a trade deficit with China is quite is growing by the day. Right. So so we still we Europeans still need the Chinese very much. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go back again to the nervosity that is very clearly existing in Brussels when it comes to uh, comes to the United States the next year. Uh, you know, the Biden presidency have given uh, the Europeans some respite, and they're usually seeing eye to eye on most things. Uh, but they are nervous about uh, 
in a sense, being uh, too dependent on America that suddenly can flip next year. And, and that is a problem for the Europeans. They're looking for different ways of still uh, keeping up this international rules-based order. And so far, the, the Americans are with the Europeans on that, but they're nervous that they once again might find themselves quite isolated. And that's where they probably need to cozy up to other partners as well. And then, of course, there is the, the, the question of Ukraine as well and how long the Europeans really can can sustain that as well with sanctions, uh, with the fact that energy prices are, you know, can skyrocket as well. There's going to be another difficult winter next year, inflation and so on. So the Europeans are in a vulnerable situation and uh, pivoting a bit again into, you know, a fairly historical um a fairly historical deal yesterday with Finland joining uh, NATO. Europe is even more dependent on American security right now. So in that sense, um, Europe is very much sitting in the American lap, but they're afraid that that lap might be shaky if there is a president in the White House, White House that is less Europhilic than the current one. Right. And I guess as perhaps a refresher to to people listening, I mean, if we think of, you know, four years of the Trump presidency, we saw relations with, you know, I think bilaterally with several European countries get a bit rocky. But I think especially with the European Union, things got quite rocky. We had trade disputes, um, you know, as Biden was coming in during that transition period. That's when the the EU and the Chinese signed this big sweeping comprehensive trade pact, which was heralded as this you know, kind of big blow, and I think was very much reflective of the times. And I mean, obviously, under the Biden presidency, we've seen perhaps some of those wounds get healed a bit, and some of those anxieties get calmed. But I guess you're getting to this broader point, which, you know, the, this seems to operate on a four year cycle. And you, uh, Europe also needs to be thinking about long term things. And when you do that, you need to hedge your bets a bit um, when we're talking strategically. But, uh, Rickard, I, I want to get back a little bit to something we were getting to earlier and talking about Emmanuel Macron and how he sees this whole issue. Um, you know, you talked about it perhaps being a bit of a legacy issue for him. There's obviously a lot about how this is perhaps seen domestically. But, you know, I can remember reading interviews by him, you know, going back several years, well before the war in Ukraine started, and especially even at times where you know, this kind of idea that Beijing and Moscow are as close as they look now seemed a bit, you know, some people were, were pouring cold water on that idea. Um, but, you know, he's been saying for a long time that this is bad news for Europe, the idea of Beijing and Moscow being so close and that, you know, it's kind of Europe's job to to keep them as far apart as, as possible geopolitically. But, um, I mean, I guess it just comes down to, is is this is this possible? Does he have the, the diplomatic goods to do it? Um, what do you think? No, I don't think so. I, I think he's not a heavyweight enough. And it's interesting that you mentioned those old articles, because actually then the idea was, of course, to pull... Russia away from China as well, and perhaps sort of create this sort of com the old idea of a common European house again, and sort of engage with Russia. And there were even thoughts about you know recreating old EU Russia summits. That was a, a year before uh, the actual war broke out or, or the invasion happened. The French and the Germans very much wanted to sort of uh, restart you know, EU-Russia summits. That's been something that was a, a sanctioned things before. So so that was his idea back then. So I think he's just desperately looking for something uh, that can be a foreign policy win, as I said before. But I don't think really what, what would he technically offer to the Chinese that would make them get away from Russia? Because right now, the Chinese, I would say, 
uh, have Russia actually where they want them, you know, like as, as a junior partner, uh, as a country at the borders that can supply especially energy and, and certain other raw materials. And I don't think the Chinese will give up on that. Uh, this is a long term strategy and, and Russia will, in a certain sense, become that sort of client state uh, to the Chinese, which is something Europe, in a sense, never will. So I don't really see the French uh, offering anything apart from business opportunities that the Chinese, quite frankly, can get in other parts of uh, larger Eurasia as well. Right. And, and I mean, you're talking a lot about, um, you know, that dynamic between Beijing and Moscow. And I think that something else that's worth pointing out is, um, I mean, it's, I, I think that there is a very genuine belief in Beijing that the West is out to get it. You know, it's mostly the United States, but I do think uh, Europe fits into this from a Chinese point of view. And I think that there's certainly a Chinese goal, you know, wanting to split off the Europeans and the Americans. But at the end of the day, that I think that's how Chinese see the world and especially see the, the world in the future. And that's why Russia is such an important country to keep by its side is because, okay, that we Russia is an, the only other real country that's willing to stand with China and kind of resist in this same way. So, you know, is there really anything that Europe can can offer to offset that need that the Russians fill? Um, so that gets to, I guess, my next question, Ricard, which is, I mean, it really does seem that, you know, given all that we've said, all that we've covered, uh, Macron and von der Leyen, you know, they're really facing some impossible tasks here. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, where do you see this all going, you know, Obviously, this visit is a three-day visit. It's kicking off today. But what happens, you know, if this whole thing falls apart? Macron, von der Leyen, they return back to Europe. They leave China. And, um, you know, then we see Xi or someone else in high up on in the, in the Chinese Communist Party signal back to Russia to show that strong support, you know, kind of counter all of the, the, the show that they just saw by, by hosting these two. I think the most important thing is not to lose face and uh, anything else than that, you know, will, will be seen as a success. But I think what the Europeans are looking at, and the first thing is actually, I think that what von der Leyen sort of hinted a bit in her speech as well is the uh, an, an updated kind, this investment agreement we talked about that is stopped in the European Parliament. She mentioned that we can perhaps, you know, look at that again and see if we can sort of strike some sort of deal, of course, taking into the security concerns that the Europeans have. So I think she can try to sell that as sort of some sort of new trade deal going forward. And another thing I think they can do as well is sort of try to sell as, you know, the communication channels are open is some sort of EU-China summit in, in Brussels or elsewhere later this year. But of course, that's going to happen uh, first after the EU-US summit that I think is likely to happen sometime in this summer, June, July, perhaps. So I think that the, the things they will look at is to see if there is some sort of trade issues, some sort of trade gains to get. Uh, and then, of course, to sort of keep uh, channels of communications open, especially on, on the highest level with some sort of summit in Brussels or Beijing later in the year, and then potentially strike some sort of deal uh, on, on environmental issues as well. That's always an easy, low-hanging fruit to, to, to reach for. Okay, Ricard, thanks a lot. Um, so I'm going to pivot now and we're going to take some questions from listeners. 
And that's also a reminder to anybody who is listening live right now. If you have a question that you would like to ask, please raise your hand and we can either get to you live or, um, you know, you can send it to one of our accounts and we can answer it in writing. So this is a question that was sent in, uh, you know, ahead of our podcast here today. Um, this is from Stephen Jones. Um, so Stephen wants to know that given that China's economy is slower, slower than it used to be, um, is it safe to say that the implied threat of secondary sanctions, either from the United States or the EU against China, is actually working in tempering any kind of public support from China to Putin amid the war. Rickard, what do you think about that? Uh, I think potentially U.S. secondary sanctions can work. I think the Americans are quite good at that. Um, I know that the Europeans hated the U.S. secondary sanctions when they first occurred because they were afraid that their own companies would be caught. Uh, Right now, uh, the Europeans are probably looking into that as well. Uh, but I don't think they will be serious about that. So, so potentially U.S. secondary sanctions could could sort of dissuade the Chinese a bit. Uh, European sanctions, no, I don't think so. Right, and, and I mean, I think that we've we've seen that play out um, uh, quite a bit already. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting. I don't know, Ricard, if you caught this, um, but Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. He gave an interview, uh, I want to say it was last week, to the Financial Times. Um, and in there, you know, he raised, um, said a few interesting things, one of which is that, you know, he doesn't think that China has decided whether it wants to be a peacemaker in Ukraine or not yet. It hasn't made up its mind on what role it wants, which I thought was interesting. Obviously, you know, in the lead up to that Xi Putin summit in Moscow that we just had a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of chat that, uh, perhaps uh, you know she was ready to break his official sign or unofficial silence, I should say, with Zelensky, who he hasn't spoken with since the invasion happened over a year ago. Um, but of course, that phone call has never come about, and it seems that you know that was again put on offer a little bit and didn't come. Um, also, in that interview, it was interesting that Kuleba said that he had a conversation with uh, his counterpart in China, the Chinese Foreign Minister. And said um, and was told or reassured, he said, that China had no plans to officially send weapons uh, to Russia to fight in Ukraine. But of course, we have seen all these um, looks at custom data, various kind of reports that have come up that are showing that at least there is, you know, kind of private companies, Chinese companies, which, you know, whether what kind of links they might or how they might be perhaps asking or acting on behalf of the state, we are not exactly sure. But there is, you know, whether that's, you know, small scale shipments of assault rifles, body armor, helmets, um, drones, things like that, that is that is taking place already. But I guess that's not the kind of stuff that triggers secondary sanctions. So perhaps that given that's all we're seeing, I, I guess we can say that I guess the U.S. ones are having some sort of effect. Um, but, Rickard, I, I, I have a question for you. Um, get your thoughts on this. Um, you know, in regards, again, this idea of China playing some kind of peace role. Obviously, the Chinese have been floating this peace plan. Um, you know, it was at the end of February when they rolled this out, this this 12-point proposal that they had. Um, but, I mean, what's your sense, you know, on the reception in Brussels to this kind of idea? Is anyone seriously seeing Xi and China as a peacemaker and do you think that that's something that you know macron is would want while he's uh during this this trip to china or is it simply to show up in china and send this message of hey don't get any closer than you already are i mean this whole chinese uh, peace plan got pretty lukewarm reception in in europe i mean it was sort of like laying the blame on both sides so to speak and, and not even europe can accept that 
I think, however, that one of the things that Macron could get as a as a as a win going to China is to persuade uh, Xi to actually pick up the phone and call um, uh, call the Ukrainian president to 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 you know make sure that Zelensky and Xi are actually talking to each other. That would be potentially a European win, and that could potentially lead to something going forward. But that's about it. You know, I, I, and I think that uh, when it comes to the Chinese as well and this red line of the West that we talked about when it comes to, sort of, for example, sending weapons. Uh, and that's another thing, you know, like, OK, they might not be sending uh, big, obvious weapons. But what about sort of artillery pieces or, or bullets? Right now we're seeing, you know, what's likely to be a war of attrition uh, in Ukraine uh, and uh, the potential bullets coming from China uh, can easily be the one that sort of holds the war for Russia, you know. So so that's another thing as well that uh, I'm always curious about how, how the West, both Europeans and Americans, react to. Semiconductors is another thing. Chips, all these sort of things that might not be weapons but will contribute to the Russian war effort. Uh, and that the Europeans or the Americans are not really sort of pushing the, the Chinese on. Uh, that's in a sense... Uh, if they can't solve that, I don't see how the Chinese can be, uh, you know, a voice for, uh, you know, negotiations in this war at all. Right. I mean, I guess it gets back to this whole thing of, you know, how can China really what what kind of mediating or negotiating role can it really play, given that it's quite clearly staked out a side. Um, OK, we're going to go to a live question now. Uh, Piotr Kurzin. Um, who is a regular contributor here. Uh, Piotr, you have a question. What do you, what do you want to know? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for that, Reid. Um, I guess my main question or point of contention, not necessarily with what's been said, but just to drill down a little bit further, is you know, can we really take anything that the CCP says at face value? Um, they have benevolent neutrality, uh, and they're not uh, you know, an actor that I think is, is acting in good faith. So can we really, uh, given everything else that's been going on with the peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, really believe that the peace deal that was proposed for Ukraine and Russia is, is even in their interests? It's, it's mainly just, I think, China wanting to be seen as a, as, a, as a peace broker. It's more about Chinese interests or optics than the actual deal. I'm just curious uh, what yourself and, uh, and um, Ricard uh, would feel about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I, I think you're I mean, obviously totally right that a big part of this is optics. It's wanting to, you know, show how China behaves as a global power, um, you know, what its kind of diplomatic uh, brand is, so to speak. I think that's a big part of it. But I do think, I mean, China, I think at this point, given how it's going, how it's progressing for Russia, um, you know, there's obviously different many different minds about this. I mean, personally, I think that the Chinese would want this war to wind down, um, especially the way it's going and the risk perhaps that it poses to Russia moving forward and that, you know, that could weaken them even further, you know, and, and impair them from being this partner to kind of push back on the West globally in the future. Um, but yeah, obviously the way that they're trying to, uh, you know, go about this, I would say, yeah, you know, that's, it's on their terms. It's doing it in a way that's in their interests, which is also sort of in Russia's interests. Um, and that's perhaps why, um, you know, it's getting such a lukewarm reception as, as Rickard said. Um, Rickard, do you want to add in here to Piotr's question? 
But just a little bit. I mean, like the European Union is always trying to give everyone and all actors the benefit of the doubt. That's just the way the European Union works. It's sort of it's it's always about sitting down and talking and having a line of communication. That's that's essentially the European model, right? So so they are always willing to to talk to anyone who's willing to talk. Uh, but it's interesting sometimes when I when I when I point out these sort of things like, well, but what positive science do you see from the Chinese? And uh, some EU diplomats pointed out to me that, well, you know, in, in the UN system, they are sometimes playing uh, quite an active and positive role and always sort of point out, you know, that the Chinese are quite influential when it comes to sort of prolonging uh, UN missions, for example, in Bosnia, the Altea mission or the Irina mission of the, uh, the coast of Libya that are both very important for the EU. And the European diplomats are always very keen uh, to point out that Chinese play a very good role in sort of making sure that these things are green-lighted every year in, in New York and to sort of push the Russians to not be a spoiler there. So, so I do think that the Europeans still, despite everything, are very keen to, to, to listen and try to engage the Chinese no matter what. Um, sure, sure. I know you have a follow-up, but I'm just going to throw in one comment before I turn back to you. Um, yeah, you know, a bit off what Ricard is saying. I think also the Chinese are quite smart in their uh, their policy and line towards the Europeans. Is I do think that they, you know, try to you know give them show that there can be even if they don't see eye to eye on things, they can be constructive, uh, as perhaps at the UN, like uh, Ricard was just saying. And I do think that they're in terms of their messaging. I think that they have been relatively okay with, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, I think just in advance of the trip from Macron and van der Leyen, um, you know, China's ambassador to the EU, um, even though he offered some criticisms of, of van der Leyen's speech uh, that Rickard and I were talking about earlier, he then said that, you know, made a point of saying, oh, Russia and China are not an alliance and, you know, trying to say that there is distance between them and kind of giving these breadcrumbs, you know, something to perhaps sustain this idea that this type of wedge that, you know, Macron says he wants to create um, perhaps could happen or perhaps is there already and it just needs to be found. Um, so I think that that's also, you know, whether that's true or not, personally, I don't subscribe to that view uh, that wholeheartedly. But I mean, we're going to have to wait and see. So, um, Piotr, you wanted to follow up? Yeah, I mean, I can say to the UN point, I worked on Crisis Group's UN team for a bit. And the one thing we came to buy, I appreciate is that the Chinese do levy or leverage the, the multilateral system a lot, um, even if they don't pretend that they do, they do. Um, but to, to, to just that point, I mean, I've been living in DC the past few years, and, and one of the things that we've seen, obviously, in recent months is the uh, is Pelosi's visit over Taiwan, and I'm not going to turn this into Taiwan versus Ukraine context, but how much do you think um, the, you know, the, the variance of the American approach towards China vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and Russia it has, a, has a role in this because Macron has, you know, tried to be the peace broker in the past and when Putin basically stuck two fingers up at him and, uh, you know, that made Macron incredibly angry. Um, America has continued to do things a little bit more, I don't know if it's intended provocatively, but they, they don't, I think, help matters. And um, with this suspected visit of McCarthy, the House Speaker, new House Speaker. I mean, I'm just curious for your take on the US versus European approach and whether or not that has any role in the way China responds or, or does it not matter? They just look at the West as one collective monolith and that's and that's it. Just wondering what you think about that. Um, my, my answer to that would be, I, I don't believe that Beijing sees 
EU and the U.S. as one collective monolith. I think they're quite actively trying to prevent that from happening. I think they fear the idea that that could happen um, and they'd be working in tandem. I mean, I think that they that's I think if you look at what Chinese foreign policy scholars and even some Chinese officials have said, you know, they want there to be distance and daylight. It's actually kind of interesting to me because it feels quite reminiscent to what Macron is saying about what he wants to do between Xi and Putin. That's a similar thing that you see. Um, you know, some Chinese uh, foreign policy thinkers saying about what they want to do between Brussels and Washington. So I, I don't think that Beijing sees them as uh, one cohesive thing um, and they want to keep it that way. Um, Rickard, do you have anything to add on no, that? No, I totally agree with you. I mean, what, I think they're, one of their main policies is actually to create that daylight uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, all right. Well, um, we're going to wrap things up there. Um, I want to say a big thank you to Ricard for joining and for everybody who participated and sent in questions and who listened to us live. Um, so thanks again. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the China and Eurasia newsletter and subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. Um, both come out every other Wednesday. I'll be back in two weeks time. And until then, I'm Reed Standish.